Your Bibles tonight, turn to the book of Hosea, chapter 5. For extra credit, can anybody tell me what Hosea means? The word literally means. Alright, so we are going to start in Hosea chapter 1 then. Okay, Robin saved you guys, salvation. Alright, I thought we were going to have to start over again, but it really pays off to take notes. Did you have that written down? You did, see? It pays off to take notes. So, Hosea, the book of Hosea, the word Hosea means salvation, and there are a lot of names that really help us out in deciphering things that the scriptures talk about. So, We see that in this book as well, different names. So the premise of the book, just want to remind you before we get into it, the premise of the book is the nation of Israel at this point in time is split into north and south. The splitting of the nation is not a good thing, not what God intended for them, but as they would continue to move away from God, then splintering would happen, weakening would happen, and that's the same thing that happens in our own life. So you have the northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom is called what? Judah. And then um, as we understand that, so the northern kingdom, the ten tribes were in the north, two tribes in the south. Our focus is on the northern kingdom And the prophecy of judgment that was going to come on the northern kingdom from the prophet Hosea. And a big part of his prophecy was that he was to illustrate what they were doing because they were not understanding their own sin. They didn't see it. They were blind to it, even though they're warned. And so... Hosea was told to marry a prostitute as an illustration, Hosea being God the Father, an illustration of God the Father, Gomer, his wife being an illustration of the nation of Israel, and especially the northern kingdom in particular, and what they were doing in regards to their relationship with God. So their relationship with God was such that they were in constant spiritual adultery going after other gods, worshiping other gods. And so as the prophecy was coming to them, uh, the, the key, and the same with us tonight, is how we respond to the things that God is saying. That's what's so crucial. So whatever condition or state we are in, what's key is that that we are responding to God correctly. And this is what God is trying to do in it demonstration and act of his mercy showing that even though his metaphorical wife the nation of israel is going after other gods that god is still pursuing them and still loves them and to get into the emotion of that just think about uh, what god was saying and, and hosea actually had to do that when gomer left him and he married her and she was a prostitute and then she left him and went after other lovers and Hosea was told to go after her and take her back and he did and he he redeemed her and, and bought her back from her selling herself out so anyway what we're going to look at tonight as we pro- proceed through the book of Hosea starting in chapter 5 we're going to look at Really the foundational issue in our lives of, of how to be right with God and how we get wrong with God and what to do about when we get wrong with God. So the whole issue at hand here, and what this really a theme through the whole Bible, is are we right with God? And if we're not, what do we do about it? And are we aware of it? That's a big thing we're going to see. So let's check it out. Hosea 
starting in chapter 5 tonight, verse 1, it says, Hear this, O priests, take heed, O house of Israel. So getting their attention. Give ear, O house of the king, for yours is the judgment, because you have been a snare to Mizpah, and a net spread on Tabor, which those are two cities, Mizpah being southwest and Tabor being northeast. And this is just a way to say the whole northern kingdom there that I'm speaking to all of you. It's like saying from California to New York or from Dallas to Houston, Here's what I want to say to you. So it's just a way of saying that. But I want you to notice, because this this is a theme going through these verses, is this continual desire of God to get our attention. So ask yourself, what, what would it take for God to actually get your attention? What would it take for Him to get my attention? Hopefully I voluntarily give Him my attention. But we live in, in a day and a time where we have so many things competing for our attention and those things that are competing for our attention are also, many of those things are competitors to God. That was the problem of the nation of Israel. So the Bible says you can't have two masters. You can't be all about the world and all about God. You can't do both. You're either one or the other. In fact, it's, It's so serious that these two competing entities, if you will, the world system and God, these two competing world systems or these competing things that we give our devotion to, they're so opposed to each other that the one that we love and give our attention to will cause us to hate the other one. So that, when I think about that, that causes me to heed, to hear, to pay attention to, because in our society, we are given this proposition that you could do both. And that's, the biggest problem probably a group like us gets into is this mixture that we go to church on certain days and then those other days we do what we do and we divide those things. Whereas when we are truly a child of God, our loyalty to Him is supreme, one and only, like a husband and a wife, like a marriage should be. And that relationship should then affect everything else we do. This is one of the biggest problems that we have in our society, in our Western idea of Christianity, of faith. So as we we understand that, this is the, the same thing. So it's not a new thing, right? So Western weak Christianity is not a new thing. This goes all the way back to our Judeo-Christian roots and our Judeo brothers here in our text. They have the same problem. So what that means is we have to make a decision. You know, just like, in a marriage, you decide that I'm going to devote my earthly relational life to this, this person. And that relationship takes precedent and also affects all your other relationships. This is the picture that we're getting here. And what Hosea is saying is that this problem that they're having, the children of Israel are having that's causing their judgment. It's affecting different aspects. As he mentions priests, he mentions the king. So it's it's in religion, it's in 
politics. It's adversely affecting all aspects of their society. So then in verse 2, he says, the revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuke them all. So, so that, that's where we get this, this understanding that they're involved in something that's not of God. And it says, though, meaning God is telling them not to, but they're still doing it. So he says in verse three, he says, I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. So Ephraim, we have to know this. It's a AKA. What does that mean? Good. Also known as Israel. So Ephraim is another way to say the northern kingdom. So he says, I know you. That's a heavy thought. God is saying he knows us. And he's saying that Israel, you're not hidden from me. The the Bible speaks about this. The importance that, that we understand our sin is not hidden from God. We can hide it maybe for some time with other people, but it's not hidden from God. And he he says, I, I know what's going on. He says, for, I, for now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry and Israel is defiled. So that word harlotry just means a, adultery. And it's a picture of what happens when our relationship with God is not one in which we are first and foremost and only devoted to. To him, But just know that there are going to be constant challenges to our devotion to God. You might want to look at it also as faithfulness to God. So we're always going to be tempted. We're always going to be challenged. We're always going to be, you could use the word, seduced away from our faithfulness, our devotion to God. And that's why we have to watch that. And we have to know that being in this world, with these bodies in this world, the only possibility that we have to be successful from going after the temptations of the world in these bodies of sin that are tempted to do that is to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. So in the spirit is where the power is to not conform to the pattern of this world. So he says this harlotry, this straying from faithfulness, it's causing a defilement. So he says in verse 4, they do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God. That's a very key, important phrase. They don't direct their deeds. So that's a, a really good way of looking at how we're to live our life, it's to live our life directed towards God. So as children of God, then we direct our decisions towards God. We direct our choices. We direct our motivation. We direct our faithfulness. So, so all of that is directed to God. And because all of that is directed to God, that, that doesn't mean that our directing our lives to God in every sphere of our life, it does not mean that we isolate ourselves and become monks. What it does mean is that God wants us in the marketplace, if you will. He wants us in the world. He wants us to be engaging the things of the world. And why is that? It's because if our life is directed towards God, then he wants us to direct his light to the world. And so that really gives us the framework of how we're supposed to live our life. Nothing else. That's it. That then becomes the purpose for a believer in this world. This becomes the why 
we do what we do? Why do we do what we do? Why are you here tonight? These are things we have to ask ourselves, a motivation for why we do what we do. So we're, dire- we're here because we're directing ourselves to God. That, if you're directing your life to God, what are you going to do? You're going to come in fellowship. You're going to come engage Him in, in prayer and worship and engage in the Word of God. That, the reason you do that is because you're a child of God. So if your identity is a child of God, then your actions are those actions of one whose life is directed to God, but it says they didn't do that. So what did they do? Instead of turning toward their God, instead of doing that, it says, for the spirit of harlotry or spiritual idolatry or spiritual adultery, there's a spirit of that in your midst. And get this, and they do not know the Lord. This speaks of a personal knowing God. So get this. This this is a a good, important point. So they may have known some things about God, right? Back there. They may have known some things about God, but they didn't know him. That's a different thing, isn't it? Right? So some people may be here tonight, may be listening online. They may... They're hearing things about God, but the question is, do you know Him? Because He's saying specifically that the reason they were committing these sins is because they didn't know Him. They just knew about Him. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, do I really know Him? How do we know Him? Well, it starts by becoming born again. So there's a, a phrase that that it's a theological idea, idea, but it's the visible church and the invisible church. I don't know if you've ever heard that. But the visible church, are, those are people that just show up. We see them. The invisible church is those who God sees. So that means you can be here tonight and not be born again, not be saved, not have your sins forgiven, and not be a child of God. And think... This is the worst part. Think, because you're sitting here, that you are truly born again and a child of God. The the nation of Israel, they're being told here that they didn't know God. And because of that, then even though they had a name of a people who devoted themselves to God, even though they had the outward, some outward stuff, that they're still in the midst of them. Notice it says in the midst of them. Which means that that was a big part of their life. A big part of their life was spiritual idolatry or unfaithfulness to God. So that that wasn't like a fringe thing. That was a central thing. So in verse 5 it says, The pride of Israel testifies to his face. What that means is it testifies against him, meaning they are self-incriminated. Because of their pride, their pride in and of itself, which opposes the attitude that we need to have to truly come to God. And what's that? Being poor in spirit, humility. That's how we truly come to God. But what keeps us from God is pride. What What, what do you mean pride? I don't need God. I'm not going to change what I want to do. I'm not going to allow God to be my king to rule over my life. So it's pride that keeps us from God. In order to come to God, we have to say, I can't be good enough. I can't come to God on my own. I can't be forgiven of my sins on my own. I I can't earn it. I can't do good enough things to make God accept me, I I have to say I can't do those things. And I have to ask Him to forgive me, not accept me on my goodness, but say I'm not good and I need you. But their pride wouldn't let them do that. And it says, therefore, Israel and Ephraim, just basically the northern kingdom, 
They stumble in their iniquity. Judah, so now he's talking about something else. Judah is the southern kingdom, right? And it says Judah also stumbles with them. So this is interesting because Judah also was judged, but it took longer for them to be judged. So the northern kingdom was judged by the Assyrians. The Assyrians conquered them. The southern kingdom was judged by the who? Babylonians. And that came later. But notice the influence of the northern kingdom on the southern kingdom. This is so important because especially when it's family or close people like the nation of Israel, northern, south, they're basically the same people. And our influence on our family, our neighbors, friends, those that are close to us, there has to be someone who goes against the pattern of the evil in the family, in friendship, in a relation. There has to be somebody that goes against that. And and what we see, we see a little glimmer of that in the southern kingdom. They had a few good kings mixed in. That allowed them to last longer. They saw some good things happen. Josiah was a good king. Hezekiah was a good king until he asked for more time and then things weren't good. But but the, the northern kingdom had zero good kings. And the southern kingdom should have been able to see what God was doing and saying in the northern kingdom and said, not us. And sometimes in, in families, there's siblings where a younger sibling sees what happens to an older sibling and the younger sibling says, not me. I'm, I see where that's going. I see the ramifications. I see where sin leads. I'm not doing that. But, but get this. When somebody stands up, when somebody goes a different direction, when somebody has actual convictions, and when somebody in a family or a friend group does that, there can be, well, I should say there will be huge ramifications And that could be good or bad. It'll be good because when one stands up and walks with convictions, especially in a family environment or a friend environment or when people are close to you, those people around are being given so much grace and mercy because they have an opportunity to see God work in a person's life. And on a world scene... The world needs us, even though the world hates Christianity, it needs us because we're the light of the world. We are the truth bearers to the world that give people the opportunity to see what God is like. And that's why God called the nation of Israel to be the nation of Israel. That's also why they were hated. But here we see, you could say, little brother going the same way as big brother and God warned big brother and he also warned little brother and you notice the tie-in in the phrase it says Judah also stumbles with them and I love to hear stories of how God in a family will raise up one person and then you you see over a course of time how that person's life affects that whole family but there's often a price to pay i believe it's psalm 63 you can look it up don't quote me on this but it says that the reproaches that were made for god will fall on those people who represent god in this world meaning look what happened to christ and and people that are not following christ and don't want christ then reproaches will fall on you a lot of times it it, it's costly in your family it'll cost family members family members will not like you stop talking to you but if you really love your family you'll walk the walk 
because that is their chance to see God working in your life. And that's their opportunity for God to demonstrate his love for them. So don't take, don't take that lightly. And don't give up. Even if your family is not talking to you or doesn't want to deal with you, even the holidays are coming up, even if you're dreading all these things, remember that God is orchestrating all these things for you to be a light to them. Right? There's a huge bigger picture that, that we need to understand here. So in verse 6, he says, With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. So what they're doing is when he's describing flocks and herds, they're going to worship the Lord in the prescribed way. This is what's so crazy about what's going on. And this is what we have to watch out for is to have, you know, still do religious things, right? So still go to church, you know, do some things, whatever. But we're mixing it. So look at what he says. He says, because they're going to seek the Lord... It says, but they will not find him. It says, because he has withdrawn himself from them. That's really a, a really heavy thought. We're, we're not going to manipulate God. So that's what this is saying. We're, we're not going to, you know, go to church and then live our life independently from God and think we're going to have a close relationship with God. Think of it back into the marriage scenario. So that that's like saying you're going to have a great marriage and a close relationship with your spouse while you're going out and having affairs the whole time. That's what that's what this is saying. So so you you're not going to manipulate God and and I just think, you know, you, you get this scene and you you think, "Well, we're Jews and you know, Abraham was our father and, and you know, we're going and, and doing all these really profane things, but we're still going to do this sacrifice. We're still going to do these things. And, and God's saying, you're not going to manipulate me. Like, in, in other words, he, he's saying, if you're not taking me seriously, how can I take you seriously? That's a heavy thing to think about. So it's possible, here's, here's how this can look. It's possible to do religious things. And, and those religious things can, can be a lot. We can, you know, plug into certain religious traditions and do a lot of things. They have a lot of rules that you do and a lot of ordinances and traditions. And you can do all those things. And yet God is saying, hey, you're not serious. Why is he saying you're not serious? It's because... Because in a relationship with me, it's not me and, it's me only. And so he says in verse 7, he says, They have dealt, the children of Israel have dealt treacherously with the Lord. That means unfaithfully. For they have begotten pagan children. Now, a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. A new moon just means like an, another month. What, he, what he's saying is that their sin is spreading into their families because they did not see their relationship with God as one in which they were married to him, they were to be faithful to him, they were to honor that relationship in every other relationship and, and other relationships weren't to come into that relationship. And because they didn't do that, and, and if you don't do that, then you're going to raise your kids in a worldly way too. And so he's saying this, this sin is just spreading, you know, it's spreading through the generations. And they would know from the Old Testament um, in Moses' time that what was so important is to raise their children in the ways of the Lord. That was a very foundational premise. You know, wherever you go, where you're walking or lying down and, and things. So, so that, you know, there's a responsibility that we have in our families, in raising children, that we do it as unto the Lord. And 
We can't control what our kids will do with that, but we can control the way that we raise them and raise them to know the Lord. So he says in verse 8, he says, Now blow the ram's horn in Gilbah, the trumpet in Ramah, cry aloud at Beth Avon, look behind you, O Benjamin, Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke, among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. So it's just a way of, of those, the trumpet and the ram's horn were warnings. So we think about these, these warnings and God is saying, I'm, I'm warning you. And at the end, he says, I make known what is sure. He's saying, this is going to happen. I'm telling you this is going to happen and I'm telling you what you need to do because this is going to happen. And they ignored that. And this is what he's saying. You're just ignoring. And it wasn't just one ignoring time, like one thing. We see that God continues to warn, continues to get our attention. And you know, it's really sad over the years here at church or just in general in in ministry to to see people that, that God has given so much opportunity and given so much of himself and and to see somebody just not heed the warnings and to continue to be set on going into sin. It never works out good. And I've seen this over and over again. I'm sure you have too. And if that is you, then... We're going to learn what to do about it. But you have to respond to God. This is this is so serious. And you know, like, sometimes if you have kids, you, you have that idea where I'm going to tell them all the bad stuff I did so they won't do it. Does that ever really work? It doesn't seem like it. Right? Because sometimes we have to learn on our own but there's different ways to learn right so we can learn by experience or we can learn by god's teaching and a a good way to to test yourself is is to ask ask yourself what do you supremely what do you supremely love but see probably most of us would say god Maybe not, but probably. If not, then that there's your problem right there. But the second thing is, if you supremely love God, then how does how is that seen in the way you live your life? So that's the other thing. We can say we supremely love God, and probably the children of Israel would have said that. I don't know, probably. But how does that look? What we're learning is, it looks like we're faithful to Him. It looks like we care most about what he thinks. It looks like we enjoy being around him, serving him. We enjoy knowing him, spending time with him. That's what it looks like. But what if someone says, I love God supremely, but there's zero evidence of what you would think that would look like? We do that. So we have to be careful of that. We have to watch that tendency. So God constantly warns us. And I talked about on Sunday, it's important to have a short leash on our walk with God. A short leash. Don't let our leash just keep going and going and going. And the next thing you know, we find ourselves in a place that we don't want to be in. Just have a short leash with God. It was said about Charles Spurgeon that he was walking across the street, a busy street one day. With, he was with a, a friend. And the friend and him were walking. And then all of a sudden... Spurgeon, in the middle of a busy street, knelt down. And his friend kept walking across. And his friend turned around and looked at him. He's in the middle of a busy street on his knees. He said, what are you doing? He said, I felt sin in my heart. I didn't want to take one more step before I made that right. That's what it's like to keep a short leash with God on in our walk. So in verse 10... It says, the princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. 
and I will pour out my wrath on them like water. So what does that mean? You're going to hear, you may hear a lot about progressivism. There's a new wave of Christianity called progressive Christianity. And there's actually a book that has just been released that's out that's really good called Progressive Christianity. I suggest you read that. But but see, what this is referring to is in, in the book of Deuteronomy, they're told not to move their neighbor's boundary marks. Right? So it's like if you have a house and your fence fell down and you're going to rebuild your fence but then you move the boundary like two or three feet into your neighbor's yard so you get more yard. See, that's what he's saying. That's the the analogy, the illustration. That was an actual thing, but what he's saying is we never progress further than the Bible. We never get so sophisticated. Science doesn't come up with some new discovery where we, we find out, Well, Christianity is changed now. The Bible is a fluid document. That's what progressivism is. That's what this is talking about, that that we don't change what the truth of God's word is because culture changes. And cultures always change. That doesn't mean that's good. And here's the thing. The Bible is always relevant Because it is outside of time. The heavens and earth will pass away, but my word will endure forever. And that's one of the ways we know the Bible is written by God himself, because it's outside of time. Just like we're reading some of these, if you like copied this and put it in modern day language and made a blog it may seem like you're talking about today. Because the Bible says there's nothing new, what? There's nothing new under the sun. So we think, oh, we're progressing and we're so advanced and, you know, we don't need God anymore. And then you just go back. Well, that's pretty much what mankind has done the whole time. Right? That's pretty much the Roman Empire, the Grecian Empire, Babylonian Empire, Assyrian Empire, Medo-Persian Empire. It goes all the way back to the tribes of Israel, it's all the same stuff. The key is don't remove the ancient landmarks. Don't remove the truth of God. The truth of God is not fluid. And just because you say, well, this is my truth, well, that doesn't mean it's the truth, right? God's word is truth. So in verse uh, 11, it says, Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment, because he, get this, willingly walked by human precept. You see that? So this is, this is simply, you can put that in your house somewhere and put it up and say, this is, this is exactly what the institutions of men have done. Read philosophy. Read these philosophers. It's, They all have a different view or slant on things, but it all comes down to the same thing. Where does knowledge come from? Does it come from a higher authority that we need to submit to? Every time a nation has embraced that, it's brought beauty, order, freedom, liberation. Every time a society has said truth exists and starts with man in man's heart, in man's experience, in man's mind. We are the authorities of truth. Every society that's ever done that, it's brought in chaos, destruction, selfishness, disorder, and what have you. We can just it's just simple to see that. So he he's saying here, because you willingly walked in human precept. So this is another huge question we have to ask ourselves is, is where does truth come from for us? Another way to think about it is, is how do you know what's right? Another way to think about it is, 
what you do, why do you do it? Are you exercising a worldly precept or a selfish precept? Have you designed your life based on what I want and my goals and my aspirations and how I want it to work out? Or have you submitted to a higher authority and say, Lord, your will be done in my life? These are two basic, clear ways and differences that a Christian should live their life and someone who's not a Christian lives their life. So ask yourself, are, do I live by human precept or do I live, live by God's truth? Verse 12, he says, Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, like rottenness. What do you think about when you think of a moth? Anybody? I can't hear. I'm... Wool. Eat it up. Very good. So moths, yes, irritating. Moths, in this context, they, they eat eat stuff, but it's given that they kind of slowly eat things that you're not aware of, usually. So he's comparing their destruction that they really don't realize the depth of it because they have some things going on outwardly that, remember, remember the, they were kind of successful. Their nation was successful at this time, but they didn't know that they're being eaten from the inside. They're being destroyed. And then he says in verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness, so Ephraim, the northern kingdom, when he saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, so they knew they were in trouble. They, they knew they were starting to be um, challenged and threatened. And they are, they're understanding we might be in trouble militarily. And they're seeing this. Then it says, then Ephraim, the northern kingdom, they went to Assyria. And they sent to King Jerob which means warrior. He's a, there's not a person that we can find in history that that is that guy, but it, that means warrior. So it may just refer to a, a military person or some sort of commander in the Assyrian army, which remember, the Assyrians are the ones that conquered the northern kingdom. But before that, they're seeing their problems. And when they see their problems, they're looking to another man or another source for help instead of what? Instead of God. If I could sum up what I see in Christianity today or spiritually, it would be this. It would be people who say that God saved them and Wash their sins away and and rose again from de- the dead, but but then they don't think that God is powerful enough to help them get through the day, to help them with their discouragement or their frustration or their financial problems. And so, what we what we have the tendency to do and what we need to watch is that we try to find an earthly solution instead of looking to God and trusting in Him and resting in Him. That's what they're doing. Another way to think about this is that there are so many substitutes that we replace faith with. We replace trusting in God with, and it makes us feel better and more secure. And God wants us to have unconditional faith. And that's scary, isn't it? If we're honest, that's kind of scary. And what do we do when we are scared? We usually try to find some sort of life raft, some sort of thing. But notice, all God wanted 
was them to turn to him. He was their ever-present help in time of need. He was the answer. So when we as believers begin to substitute all these ideologies and philosophies and self-help and all these things to build our self-esteem and build our lives. And instead of just trusting in the Lord, that's when we're doing the same thing. But man, when we start just trusting in the Lord, it's amazing. That's where we really start to grow in our faith and our confidence in the Lord. It reminds me of Peter walking on water as they were on the sea of Galilee and the winds hit and Jesus showed up and and Peter had this moment of spiritual boldness and he initiated he said Lord command me to walk on the water and Jesus told him to come and that picture is amazing because what you have is when one one walks by faith their eyes are fixed on Jesus and we can get out of the confines of the boat and we can go and they made that song oceans I think kind of in reference to that but isn't it amazing like you know we sing that but do we do that are we just stuck in the boat comfortable are we going out and walking by faith and and being in a place where all we have is Jesus if he doesn't hold us up we're going down and even if we go down he'll Pick us back up again. But see, watch this tendency. Be careful because many times we don't understand that God allows things in our life to test our faith. When we don't see it as a test of our faith, we start to scramble and panic as if we're not a child of God. And God will grow our faith and continue to move us deeper into into faith and trusting in Him. But what does it take for our faith to actually grow? It has to be used, right? What does it take for your biceps to grow like Marcos's? You have to exercise them. You have to work with concrete like Marcos does. You have to do curls like Marcos does and But see, don't think we're going to have great faith if we never exercise our faith. And God will put us in positions where we get to exercise our faith. Don't miss those opportunities. Don't take matters into your own hands because now you've just wasted an opportunity to grow in your faith. And for us as believers, there's nothing more important than our our faith. That's how we walk and live our Christian life. So, in verse 14, it says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. So, their destruction was going to be subtle like a moth, but then it would eventually come like a lion. It says, I will take them away. No one shall rescue them. If God's doing this, there's no one that can help them. It says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their offense. That's interesting. That's one of those verses you're just cruising along and you get judgment and stuff happening and then you get a verse like this and like, these are one of these things like, what is that? That's very interesting. He's talking about this judgment and he says, I will return again. So here's one of those Old Testament kind of sneak in verses that speak about Jesus coming and actually tells us he's going to come twice. How do you know that? Well, look, he says, I will return again. That means that Jesus has to be here, so he has to come. 
And then it says he's going to return again after that. You guys picking that up? He says, until, so he's going to tell us when he's going to come back again until they acknowledge their, their offense. This is amazing. So he's going to come back again. So he's going to come and he's going to leave and he's going to come back again. When? When they acknowledge their offense. When are they going, going to, whose day? The nation of Israel. When are they going to acknowledge their offense? Zechariah chapter 12 Verse 10, in the tribulation, they will look on him in whom they pierced. So there's a future time when the nation of Israel will recognize. We've been talking about this a lot in Daniel and Matthew, but they will recognize Jesus as their Messiah and they will repent. And what he's talking about is that's when he's going to come back again. It says, then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So the, a, a picture of the second coming. And so we're just going to end right there. I know you'll be shocked tonight. We're going to end right there. And I want us to be considering, thinking about processing these truths in here, and here's why. Because it, it's, it's easy, and I, I do this a lot. It's easy to be more about the quantity than the quality. So sometimes I'll read, I'll read my one-year Bible, and I'll feel good because I read it all. But then... Did it get in me? Did, it, did, did these truths really seek, sink, uh, sink in? And I, I want, I want tonight almost. I know this. We usually go past time, but I want this to be sort of a a way for us to remember that we we can't just keep moving on and moving forward. That there are times we have to stop and say, "Lord, search my heart." You know, if you're sitting here, you you may think, you know, you're doing pretty good and and you're walking with the Lord and that's good. And if that's the case, praise the Lord and um, just ask the Lord to say, Lord, I want to be fully devoted to you. Is there anything holding me back? Is there anything keeping me? But then the other thing is, as we've looked in this text... It's easy just to be here. Well, no, I shouldn't say easy. I know you guys made big commitments being here. What I'm saying is, just sitting here and being here is one thing. But having my heart surrendered to the Lord is another thing. And so I, don't, I, I just felt like I just want to keep reading tonight. We'll do that a lot. We've always done that. We'll read a lot. Don't worry. But tonight we have to stop and say, you know, Maybe this is one of those times in my life. I just want to take a little time and, and just, you know, ask the Lord, you know, how we're doing. Ask the Lord to search my heart. And maybe maybe tonight is one of those nights where the Lord is bringing to your attention that your attention has been elsewhere. That He's not your first love anymore. Maybe you're going through the motions. Maybe you've gotten lukewarm. And the the Lord loves you so much. He wants you to know you have to come back to Him. You have to surrender. And with the children of Israel, they just kept getting warnings and warnings and they just kept doing the same thing. And I would just just want to encourage you to take some time with the Lord, to allow some of these things to soak in, to speak to you. Because we live in a time now where 
if we're not awakened by what we see in society now, if the things that we have seen this last year are not driving us to our knees, if nothing has changed devotionally in our walk with God over this last year, I believe this last year is a warning for us. And how easy it is to just wake up, do our thing day in and day out and never really take inventory to see, well, where are we going and what are we doing and and what's happening? Is my life growing? Is my love for Christ growing? And that's what we need to be so careful about. That's what I'm very concerned about in my own life. And that's something that keeps me up at night as I think about you and pray for you and am concerned about you. Those are the kind of things that, that I think about. And I'm not saying that because there's anything specific. I'm just saying, as I read things like this, I, I can see the tendency in our own heart. And we have to come to a place where we say, for me to live is Christ. And then we live and walk that out. So we're going to finish early, but we're, the more I talk, we're not going to finish early. But, but seriously, as we, as we go tonight, just let this be a time where whatever state we're in, that we can, we can actually say, for me to live is Christ. And ask God for the power of the Holy Spirit to help us walk and live that out. Because if the church is not being awakened now, there's a good chance the church won't be awakened. And I believe the condition of the church in the last days will be one of apostate and lukewarmness. Meaning, in general, the church is not going to be in good shape. Now, that doesn't mean the church can't be in good shape in certain locations, in certain places. And so I'm probably maybe preaching to the choir, but it's always good to take inventory. It's always good to say, what am I living for? It's always good to make sure we're right with the Lord. And so we're going to pray. And I want to take just maybe two minutes. We're going to have just a quiet time, two minutes around two minutes I'm not going to time it but this is just a time you know we're going to leave here and we're going to go on and do our thing this is a time to to just talk to the Lord and make sure you're right with the Lord and I just have to say if anybody is listening I know people listen online if you're not a Christian if you're not born again if you're not forgiven of your sins you need to do that now because we don't know when the day or the hour is coming and we don't know when our last breath is, but we ha- once our last breath is taken, our eternity is set. So is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? How do you do that? It's by recognizing you're a sinner and praying to God that He will forgive you and receiving God as your King, as your Lord and Savior. Do that tonight. And if you've gotten lukewarm or complacent, I would say take time. Don't just let tonight be it, but unplug and fast and pray and receive the love of God, which passes all understanding. So let's take two minutes. This will be between you and God, and then I'll I'll pray us out of here.
Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here and online. And I pray, like Paul said, that he didn't count his life dear to himself. I pray that you would help us not to count our life dear to ourselves. Forgive us of our pride, of our complacency, of our selfishness, of our self-centeredness. Renew a right spirit within us, Lord. May our lives bring glory to your name. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, good night, you guys. God bless you. Bye at home. God bless you. We miss you. We'll see you soon.